you have never been to this class before, will you please stand up? There you go. This is harder than usual. As usual. So first of all, welcome. We can say communally welcome. What? I guess you don't want to stand up? What's your name? Lauren. Lauren. Well, okay, that's okay. So the people who we do see, and Lauren, welcome to being here. What's your name? Liz. And where are you from, Liz? Alameda. Welcome. Come again. Colleen from San Francisco. Okay. Hello, Colleen. Okay, okay. Why did you come today? Because um, Liz and I have been talking about coming in, so it worked out. Great. We think you're a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> You know, alas, among, I have many virtues, but singing is not one of them. <laughs> teaching rock star. Teaching rock star. There you go. Leslie, and I'm from Green Bread. Okay. Not so far. Welcome, Leslie. And? Sandy, and I'm from Walnut Creek, and Lisa told me you are a rock star. <laughs> and Dale is from Chicago. We just met at the beginning of class. And he's just visiting this week and uh, at an emergency medicine conference in San Francisco. If you have a heart attack right now, he'd know what to do, but <laughs> try not to. <laughs> you know, the 911 people, by the way, are right across the street here. We're in a good place. So that, uh, they've come a few times. Uh, and who else is here? So welcome to everybody. Thank you. Okay. So now here we are. That's a good part. I like that part. What? I like that part where we individually welcome people. I do like that part. Maybe we should figure out how um, periodically people, we should have this half, this group of people stand up and reintroduce themselves. So we should do something to keep up with everybody's names. So I'll tell you what I thought about this week. <laughs> because I remember saying last week, and I really tried to do it, sometimes I say, next week we're continuing this thing that we brought up and worked on. And then uh, on Tuesday, when I'm preparing for Wednesday, I forgot what the thing was. So this time I wrote down what the thing was right away, and I actually worked on it all week. So because I've been very excited. Uh, somehow th these particular thoughts have been on my mind. The, uh, it came to me that um, we, I, this had all come because last week we were talking about the Metta retreat that I just finished. And uh, I was last week talking about uh, emphasizing equanimity as really what we are cultivating. What I said in the beginning, moment to moment, being all right with this moment. Not necessarily thrilled with it or delighted or disappointed. I mean, delighted is, is a possibility and disappointed is a possibility. But to be able to say, that's what's happening. This is what's happening now. I was so struck by uh, the definition I learned earlier this year. I heard Gil Fransdahl say it. You know, we can all figure out what equanimity is. We all know what the word means. We say so-and-so has a lot of equanimity. So we think about poise keeping it together. Those are all good definitions. Uh, that equanimity from uh, the point of view of 
mind practice is being able to say, this is what's happening now. This is what's happening now. And not uh, either um, uh, grab it or uh, hate it. Just, this is what's happening now. And uh, let's see what happens next. And I love that second line. I keep saying that because it reminds us that there's a next. And often when uh, something happens and my mind leaps into alarm mode, uh, it's because I've already decided that if this is what's happening now, that the next is going to be terrible. I have a view about this only means, this could only mean that some dire thing is down the road. Um, I have several examples, which I'll tell you right away, out of yesterday's news that I do have views about. But I decided that there's a third part to that that is really important for me to say. It's not only this is what's happening now, let's see what happens next, but the third part is what can I do in this moment? Not just this is what's happening now and uh, let's see what happens next, because there's a little too much passivity in that for me. It's good enough to remind me that there is going to be a next and that something will evolve. Everything changes moment to moment. And it changes according to conditions. And what I do is one of the conditions of the change. So what can I do now? Uh, sometimes doing means doing nothing. You know, that sometimes means waiting. But what can I do? And I thought about... Uh, that equanimity, what equanimity def definitely isn't, is serenity. Might have a a a, 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 a part of uh, steadiness in it, but serenity is a little bit too flat for it, and uh, uh, passivity is definitely way too flat for it, and uh, indifference is way way too flat for it. That indifference has a little bit of aversion in it. It's nothing to me, you know. It's all the same to me. That that really is actually in the literature, indifference is the opposite of equanimity. Uh, it's the near enemy of um, uh, equanimity. It could look like equanimity, but it's actually equanimity with a little. Aver it's not equanimity. It's it's um, aversion. You know, I don't want to do anything about that. Uh, so I was thinking a couple of things. I was thinking about, uh, I, I think I told you that when I began my metta practice 30 years ago, my teacher said, may I be say these four sentences, may I be free from danger, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness, may I have ease for well, of well-being. I never said what do those mean. She said, say, I said, you know, I just, uh, <laughs> I was 30 years younger and she was, uh, you know, she'd been studying with Pandita in Burma and she said, say this, I said it. And I said it, I don't know, thousands of times over the next decades. And over the next decades, those very teachers that had taught me those particular phrases to begin with, change them to make them more modernized. I think in response to the uh, feedback from decades of, of students who said, I don't want to say danger. I don't want to say the word danger. It brings up bad feelings in my mind. And I don't want to, and mental happiness, who knows what that is? It's a weird construction. I actually called a friend of mine last night to say, tell me the poly of that. What does it, what's it translated from? What, what's another way to say that? But 
couldn't find the person at home, so it was a too last minute. May I have physical happiness? Couldn't figure out what the poly is for that either, because I need to find the source. I'll find out, by the way, because I'm on a trail of something now. I really am interested in it. Because, truth to tell, over the years, I also changed what I said. I, uh, in response to, let's not say, uh, free of danger, let's say safe, I began. I, I made a limerick once, uh, probably eight or ten years ago. May I feel protected and safe. May I feel contented and pleased. May my physical body support me with strength. May my life unfold smoothly with ease. It's a nice limerick. And it uses all those same four intentions in it, so it's faithful to the beginning of it. And I used it for, I don't know, five or ten years. I taught it for five or ten years. And then I decided it was too limericky. <laughs> and uh, and that it was possible to say to be saying it like a limerick da 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 then his daughter named Nan ran away with a man and asked for the bucket, Nantucket. So that was the first one I learned. So I decided that limericks were too carefree and that you can get too... What? I just wanted to ask you, what about... Um, I usually wish people unconditional love. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. I'm going to say, I'm going to, you know, my, my, great, my greatest belief is it doesn't matter what words you say. And there's just the feeling of that saying any amount of things is only a way of keeping your attention focused so you don't get caught in all your stories about why you don't like that person or why you used to not like the person or what, what's the matter with the person. That they're just all ways of steadying their mind, your mind. It's all heuristic. They're, they're just all tools. They're not anything but tools to train your attention. And my greatest belief is that when your attention gets settled, then what happens is your own natural goodwill takes over and you just feel that for people and you don't need to be saying da-da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> so I decided I didn't like the, the limerick thing so much. And besides, I began to have a different form of practice and I taught people, maybe the last 10 years, I don't know, to say, may I feel safe, may I feel... Uh, contented, sometimes happy. I do it one way or another because happy is, happy is a strange word. What do you mean happy? Contented means I'm not having a problem, at ease. May I? But even happy, that brings up a certain element of joy. May I feel safe? May I feel happy? May I feel strong? May I live with ease? I taught that for a lot of years. I'm still teaching it, and I explain it. I have a lot of rationale for explaining it. I don't say may I be, because that could bring up thoughts about who could be safe in a world like this. And it's, it's, it's like philosophically provocative. Who could be anything, even if I were safe? You never know when you won't be safe. I want to really say, may I feel safe? Because my greatest belief is that sometimes we're in circumstances that are not so safe, but that it would be possible if I had a trained enough mind to feel safe at that point. There are lots of circumstances where, you know, you're 
somewhat jeopardized. You get sick. You don't know what's going to happen or whatever. May I feel safe. May I feel happy. May I feel strong. May I live with ease. And I, all of these things, they're all fine. Complete disclosure prompts me to tell you that if I'm riding in a plane and I'm doing something, I'm reading a book or I'm maybe watching the TV or something or other, knitting, and we're going along and everything's okay, and all of a sudden, without the flight crew saying, you buckle your seatbelts, there's a patch coming up of difficult air, especially when you go over the Rockies, they have such a thing as called a, um, a mountain air or a, a mountain bump. It's got some kind of a name. I forgot what they... What do they call that, Joe? Yeah, but there was a sentence like a mountain wave. A mountain wave, I think. A mountain wave. So, and all of a sudden, they don't, the pilot doesn't know it's coming. And all of a sudden, you're riding. goes, da 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 And then they'll come on after the da 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 And they'll say, um, and ladies and gentlemen, that was a mountain wave. We didn't know about it. But, you know, we're all fine now. And when that happens, da 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 my mind says, may I be free of danger, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness, may I have ease of well-being. I think it's like when people are born speaking German and then they learn English and French and they live in Spain, if they come to be dying, they speak German again in their final hours because it's really embedded in the deepest levels of their cortex. So I began recently to think, well, when I'm teaching... I could teach safe and happy. By the way, I have a really wonderful rationale for why it's so good to say, may I feel safe, may I feel happy, may I have a strong, may I live with ease. Because each of those things are not philosophical. They're actually feelings. You can say, may I feel safe. And you could conjure up. You can bring up, not conjure, that means manufacture, but you can bring up feelings of safety in your body. What? When you you do this meditation, do you say... May I or may you? Okay, this is terrific. What's your name? Debbie. Debbie, this is a great question. Actually, over a period of time, it's a formal practice. You start with may I, you do that for a while. Then you think of some people that your family, you say may you. Then you think of other people, not your family, and you think uh, my dry cleaner, uh, <laughs> my mail deliverer, um, my hair cutter, may she feel... So people that you know but don't think about so much. And eventually you think about may all beings. But you start with yourself, actually. I'm saying I because that's the beginning place of it. And some people, by the way, start at the other end. May all beings. And they start from that end. And they practice so much that it warms their own heart. And then they feel much more comfortable about wishing for themselves. So that's all true. And any way to practice well-wishing is great. You cannot bless wrong. I mean, there's, there's, it's impossible to be wishing good thoughts and have a, a, a negative heart. It's like, it's like driving your car in forward and in reverse in the same time. It doesn't go both ways. And blessing is a generosity of spirit. And I think of it as lifting myself out of my self-preoccupation when I think about other people and wish them well. So that if you sit on a muni bus or you sit in big traffic and you wish everybody else well, you're not likely to be thinking, I'm going to be late and I'm going to miss my appointment. It was really stupid of me to leave so late and 
any other uh, fruitless thoughts that we might be thinking that just make your muscles tense. You think about, look at all these people. Everybody's late. I hope everybody gets to where they're going safely. It's just easier for the mind to think that. Anyway, this whole story that I'm telling you is because I got interested recently in the fact that what's wired into me most deeply are those original phrases. So I thought, well, I'll go back and hang out with those original phrases. I'll come clean about that's what I'm saying. And then I'll go look at them again. And last week we spoke particularly about the first of them, May I Be Free of Danger. And I thought to myself, you know, it doesn't bother me to say the word free of danger instead of safe. I don't think it, for me it's okay. And then I remembered that there's another chant that I heard. And I think that my, my teachers told me, say, may I be free of danger. They had shortened that first line of a chant, which is, may I be free of enmity and danger. Because it makes a big lot of sense to me to think when I, if I were really free of enmity, I'd be free of danger. I think it really, if I were to parse it all out, the original phrase either was or should be, may I be free of any enmity because it would be a danger to my peace of mind and I wouldn't be safe with it. I think that's what it means. Now that may turn out to be not what anybody meant, but I think that's what the Buddha meant. Unequivocally, omitting none, may none despise another or deceive any being for any reason, just as a mother would give her life, just as a parent, just as a person might give their life. Good Craig Sherman, who went to West Africa to take care of people. People are very, very generous when they are moved by the plight of other people. Sometimes I think I could never do that. I don't know if I could or couldn't. I don't know. But I'm really awed by people who are heroic and saving other people or wanting to take care of other people. I'm moved by that. I'm sure we're all moved by it. I'm sure we all have different constitutions and different levels of bodily fear. So maybe we couldn't all do that, but we could all feel moved by it, that some people can. It's a possibility of human beings to do that. That's such a noble thought, that somebody does it. Maybe even I don't have to think to myself, oh, I can't do that. I'm too fearful, I'm too this, I'm too that. It doesn't matter, somebody can do it, you know? That, and it's a, it's a people thing to do, and I'm a person. That's a, really, that's a really good way to think about it. It's not a way of getting out of it. I remember thinking that thought when um, uh, my friend Alex Berzin, who lives in uh, Germany now, but lived many years in Dharamsala teaching uh, uh, translating for the Dalai Lama, uh, and then became his representative uh, teaching in Muslim country, countries in uh, um, Asia and talking to them and making connections with Muslim clergy and teaching Dharma all over uh, the whole of uh, Russia and the, the whole Siberian part of Russia. 
and he used to tell me stories about how he would f uh, fly to different remote places on uh, very um, chancy-looking aircraft without uh, seat belts, people standing in the aisle during takeoff and landing, um, people smoking in the aisles, walking around, sleeping in remote um, uh, airplane terminals. What did he tell me? Eating some strange food. I can't even remember. It was probably so appalling. Um, <laughs> And I, and I remember that, I remember distinctly that the thought went through my mind. I was so impressed with his, you know, it was really like missionaries going beyond or, or, or really doctors without borders going to all kinds of remote places. And I thought, oh, I wish I could do that. And I knew I couldn't. And I thought, no, 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 I don't have to do that. Alex is already doing it for me. I have to do my life. Um, there's a, like a saying like that. Well, somebody told me it recently. That they said, uh, remember to be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. <laughs> Which is really nice because it gets, it gets you kind of off the hook for being anybody else. You know? Anyway, that's all to say. It's, it took me a half hour to say that um, I thought all about that about because I thought about that first line of may I be free of enmity and danger and I decided if I was going to say my old phrases that I was going to say may I be free of enmity and danger because that's the thing and I think it's maybe the whole thing that um, I see in my notes it says uh, talk about uh, yesterday's newspaper. Uh, the danger is danger into feeling, falling into distress and despair and uh, hopelessness. So uh, you know because I told you last week that I've been reading slowly, because it's a slow reading book, This Changes Everything by Naomi Klein. Very hard to read both because it's so densely written and also it's so appalling to really see unequivocally what a dangerous and precarious situation this planet has gotten into. It's not, uh, it's not that Naomi Klein is absolutely hopeless. In fact, she's hopeful that if the whole planet would pull itself together in this decade, actually, and do some really serious big moves to lower carbon emissions, it doesn't necessarily mean the end of life as we know it on this planet by the end of this century. But if it doesn't, it's a very bad thing. So I've been reading Naomi Klein and trying to keep hopeful. Everybody tells me if I read on and on, I'm going to find out that she actually has a lot of hope in the end of the book. So, so far I'm plowing on. <laughs> So in yesterday's paper, it says, um, Republicans vow to fight EPA and approve Keystone Pipeline. And there's a picture of uh, Mitch McConnell. It says, Senator Mitch McConnell has said he will fight regulations that would limit carbon emissions. 
So here's this picture, big smiley face, and he's going to fight carbon emissions. So I look at that and I think, ah, very hard not to have several thoughts after that that are, <laughs> that are angry and indignant and impatient and um, distraught and... I think that'll and be great. More details, Listen, and and I have good news. In the very same paper, I said, "Okay, we're just going to put that down." Now we're going to continue to read the paper. In the very same paper, it said that Denmark is aiming for 100% renewable ed- uh, energy, and uh, Denmark, a tiny country on the northern fringe of Europe is pursuing the world's most ambitious policy against climate change. It aims to end the burning of fossil fuels in any form by 2050, not just in electricity production as some other countries hope to do, but in transportation as well. And it talks about how. So so I began to think about, because then my mind right away thinks, well, Denmark and the United States. I think, don't think that, because... I want to go back to what happens in my mind in the moment after I hear something startling, uh, startling in a not good way, is that my mind in that moment leaps to what I think will be the foregone conclusion from that and does not often have enough steadiness to say, let's see what happens next and what can I do now. And it, if it does that, into, if, it, if before I can do that, it leaps over to it's all over and, you know, my, my granddaughter's going to be uh, an old woman then, but at the end of the century, but still, she'll have children, they'll have children. How do I know any of that? You know, this is all what my friend, um, and that's assuming that it all goes wrong, not that it goes right. These are all what my friend and colleague Sharon Salzberg said um, are add-ons. All I know is I had that piece of news. Uh, what I added on, if ah, if Mitch McConnell said that, then it's all finished. I don't know. It's not a good piece of news right now, but I don't know what's down there. And thinking catastrophically is going to alarm my mind, and I won't know what to do now. What we can say? Well, I find reading the paper and trying to maintain um, equanimity is really, really hard, and I'm new in my practice, and so I'm wanting to like avoid listening to NPR and reading the paper, but um, so I, I guess it, it almost seems like it, it's a lot of work to read the paper and stay sort of centered in, in the face of it. Listen, what's your name? Melanie. Melanie, thank you. I think it is. On the other hand, uh, you know, I do read the paper, I, I, and I don't know that the New York Times is the best. I, you know, I, I read the paper, I read the New York Times every day. Uh, mostly every day. I read, when I travel, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. It's a habit I have of go to the airport, buy both newspapers, and read them on a long journey because they both have very first-class writers and they both take the same material and they both arrive at different conclusions. (laughs) So they spin the story a different way. And it's like good for me to see that they do that. You know, I don't think that way. 
And I start reading with a built-in bias that says, well, sure, they see... But, I, you know, I really am looking at the bias. Um, and I think to myself, sometimes when I read this terrible stuff, what I think is terrible stuff, I think to myself, I could be wrong. I don't know everything. What I can't afford is demoralized, you know? I have such admiration for... Uh, people who, in the face of uh, what looks like a, a lost cause, keep having energy for the cause. I think that's really, what's the alternative, really, when you think about it? What are we going to say? Well, it's not going to work, so I'll give up. I really, in, in, Melanie, in, in response, you know, I don't know the right amount to uh, pay attention to media. I don't, I don't, uh, watch television news. Um, I don't know. It's all, you know, I, I just don't because it has a very firing up. But my friend um, Tony Bernhardt, who comes to teach here sometime, uh, used to have a practice of listening to uh, uh, vituperative talk radio. I'm not mentioning who, but. <laughs> By superative talk radio, he said it took him an hour, a half hour to get from his office in Sacramento to his home in Davis. And every day at five o'clock when he got in his car, he turned on the vituperative talk radio <laughs> and listened to it until he got home to see if he could get home sound of mind and body. That he just listened. Think, look at that. Imagine that, saying a thing like that. And, you know, <laughs> imagine that, you know. Uh, Penelope. Sylvia, you just you just showed us um, when you said, and I read this article and it said this, and then all these other thoughts came, feelings came in, and you were completely, there was equanimity. You were looking at your mind, you weren't looking at the material. You just demonstrated the practice. That's, that's the path and the fruition. Well, I hope, Penelope. Well, I had this thought. Yeah. I thought if Mitch McConnell could look at the EPA and go, and now all these thoughts and feelings are coming in. <laughs> <laughs> I have to fight that danger to me. And yeah. I have to, you know, yeah. It's like, there it is. Thank you. Well, <laughs> you're welcome. You know, because I think the bottom, the, you know, there's really for me, no alternative but staying in the game in some way, doing something. Yes. That's why I thought it was so important for me to add what I, to what I said last week about this is what's happening, let's see what happens next, and, because I didn't say last week, what can I do now? I can come here and talk to 50, 60 people and say, listen, wow, can you imagine that? This is what happened. It's happening. Maybe there's things to do. Maybe there's letters to write. Maybe there's senators to call. Um, I wouldn't even tell you the other <laughs> inflammatory things that I read because the point, <laughs> the point is there's inflammatory things to Nancy. There's a wonderful poem. I think it's called Sometimes by Shima Q. And it's, it's been a while since I've used it, but I used it a lot. Um, and it's like sometimes things don't turn out so badly, basically. So like sometimes... The traffic isn't bad, or sometimes the frost doesn't take the grapes out before they're harvested. Yeah. Um, and it's just that reminder that we really don't know what's going yeah. on. Yeah. I think that that's the important part, though. Let's see what happens. 
Is it sometimes? I think that's what it's called. I can... We'll look it up. We'll Google. You and I will have the assignment of bringing it next time. And it, I'll, I'll bring the other poem by, um, not Jane Kenyon, maybe Jane Kenyon. Um, it could have been otherwise. It could have been otherwise. This and this and this happened. It could have been otherwise. Everything could have been otherwise, but it's this way. And let's see what happens next. I've been thinking so much about contingency, about... Uh, when you say, uh, who told me yesterday? Oh, uh, it came up about uh, one of my granddaughters is in a uh, long-time relationship. But who knows? It seems likely that it's going to be a continuing one. She's a young adult. She has a seeming, uh, you know, she's very happy in her relationship. Uh, I took her to dinner three years ago in a particular restaurant in San Rafael. We had dinner, and we stood up. I said, I'll take a photo of you. person at the next table said, would you like me to take a photo of the two of you? So I said, sure, I hand the camera, take a picture of the two of us. And uh, she said something very nice about your granddaughter is very beautiful. I said, thank you very much. She said, I have a son. I said, I'll show you his picture. No way. No, No, yeah, absolutely. He said the son is very good looking. And then she said her name, and it just so happened that I recognized by her name that her father was a man I had worked with 30 years before, and I carried on about her father. And she said she took the phone number, and that man called my granddaughter that afternoon, and they've been together ever since. And if she hadn't taken the picture, if I hadn't gone to that restaurant, if I hadn't, if I hadn't, if I'd had a headache that afternoon and said, let's go tomorrow, her whole life would be different. You think, ah, you know. Everything is contingent. You don't know. It doesn't usually happen that way. But then if you really think, the fact that I got up this morning is the same sort of a miracle because it means that all night long my heart kept beating and my kidneys kept excreting and the Krebs cycle worked and the, and the breathing circle cycle worked and everything that, had, that, can't, that could misfire didn't misfire. And, and so it's a big coincidence that that happened because it could have been otherwise, you know, and you never know. And someday, Jane Kenyon says, it will be otherwise. Then you think, ah, do not squander this moment on... So let's say, let's say that, I don't have my pen. Uh, so we're going to bring Jane, let evening come. And uh, otherwise, and sometime. But we don't know who wrote sometime. You said she, I think it's she next year. Uh, you do your homework, I'll do my homework. Uh, what? Okay, so here's here's a new assignment. I'm not going to be now. I'm really not going to be here for a few weeks, but then I am going to be here for three weeks. And let's have an open invitation to bring a poem that really, really touches your heart. And then we'll make a time, maybe 
one, maybe just after we finish the, uh, our meditation, before or at the end or sometime, maybe we'll sometime find 10 people brought a poem. And then we'll just, I'll say what I have to say and I'll say it the next time. And we'll just teach the poems because they, they're great. I already know what I'm going to bring. So there you go. <laughs> da, da, da. I have just a quick question. Yeah. Um, how about the phrase, may I be free from internal and external harm, as opposed to may I be free of enmity and danger? You know, I know that I think it's um, Guy and Sally who teach that inner and outer harm. I think that's fine. I actually thought about it the other day. I thought, well, maybe that's because I was going through all the phrases that I'd ever heard. I thought maybe I should say that. But um, I actually don't say, uh, I choose not to. I know they do, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But I choose not to say, may I be free from outer harm. Because I don't even say, may I be healthy. Because I'm not in charge of that. You know, I'm really not in charge of that. I actually am in charge, and I think I'm doing it for my own self. And from that point of view, this is a sort of a big confession. But when people say, do you think prayer works? I do. But the kind of prayer, like, may I be free of enmity, because I'm in charge of that. Um, I actually wrote that down here. Where did I write this? About prayer helping. Oh, I thought of it. I, I, I was thinking of the Naomi Klein book again. It's really compelling. Uh, and I, w I was thinking about um, after I became indignant uh, with Mitch McConnell and thought about I could blame him, I could blame this, I could blame big oil, I could blame the media that's in the control of this one or that one. And I could do a lot of blaming, but then I thought, that's not helping. What can I do? And I had a very strange source of reassurance because I've been uh, quite startled by the Naomi Klein book. Really, it's worth looking at. We should have like a, I said this to somebody, nobody should read it alone. They should get a reading buddy <laughs> and, uh, and read it one chapter at a time and say, let's talk about this because it's so hard to, to read. You have to, I actually have a reading buddy. I'm talking to my friend, Sheila on the East Coast once a week about uh, two chapters at a time because it's too hard to really, you have to churn it over with somebody else. Get a reading buddy. Anyway, uh, all of a sudden, here she is, this very important informer, and I thought the fact that she wrote this and has a two-year-old child makes me reassured. She must think there's going to be a world. I just made that up. Maybe she doesn't think there's going to be a world. Maybe she, maybe she had the child accidentally. How do I know? You know. But, but I decided, I made up the add-on that she had this child purposely because she must think that the <laughs> prevailing forces in the world will, in fact, rescue it. <clears throat> and thinking that somehow we're going to outlive the misuses of power and do better things. Because it really doesn't help to be hopeless. You know, I, I, uh, and I was thinking about um, uh, religion and religious groups like this or any other religious group. And I think um, 
you know, we always pray for peace. Um, but I think about, and then people say, does prayer help? It helps me. Uh, because I realize if I want to work for peace, I have to have a peaceful heart. I have to not have enmity in my mind for the people who I think are wrecking the world or not working on behalf of the world or the people who I think are for whatever reasons of their own blindness. In the world or in my life, here is a very... Oh, I, I read this to you in the beginning of this morning. I, I remember telling this to you. I'm going to tell it to you. Again, because I think it's really important. I want to remember to come back to it. <coughs> that what I read to you about John McCransky. It said, when people say something and you say, and you tell about it, you say, well, I couldn't forgive this person because he said this and that about me. Or I couldn't forgive this politician because he did this or that. And I feel he's not only hurting me, he's hurting the whole planet, he's hurting everyone. And therefore, I can't wish him well. I can still think he's not doing a good decision, but I don't have to wish him ill. Wishing ill pollutes my own mind. It's so, it seems to me so pivotal that may I be free of enmity and danger is an effort to keep my own mind unpolluted. Un, um, unembittered. unembittered, that's the word that I'm looking for unembittered. Uh, there's a line in Adam Gopnik, who's a uh, writer, frequent writer on the staff of the, New York, of the New Yorker, tells a very wonderful story in one article or one of his books about his uh, daughter having for a long time an, uh, an imaginary playmate and every night at dinner, she would regale her two parents who were completely hypnotized by their first wonderful child and everything that she did. And so every night she would tell them the new exploits of her secret invisible friend. And one day she, uh, at, at the mealtime, they asked her about the friend and they said, and she said, oh, he died. And they say, oh, what did he die of? And she said, he died of bitterosity. <laughs> and I like that so much. You know, this is from a four-year-old or something. But, and there is no word, bitterosity. But the idea that you could, a person could die of bitterosity. That, uh, and everybody is saying, yes, yes, they're shaking. Yeah, everybody knows somebody who's walking around in a body, but they have already died of bitterosity. There isn't any uh, sweetness or loving... Um, Makes you feel bad that that idea. Somebody was going to say something, and I and I just saw your hand. What were you going to say? Oh, they. Huh? This changes everything. This changes everything. Um, she's on all the radio. Huh? And I wonder what will happen next. And I wonder what will happen next. Uh, in this very week. Um, uh, there was a whole page in uh, the New York Times book review saying this was an amazing book. 
and really everybody should read it. The reviewer of it said, the only thing that's wrong with it is its title. It says, this changes everything. The subtitle is um, uh, something, uh, oh. Yeah, something, environment versus capitalism, something like that. And, and, and the reviewer said, it's not capitalism, really. It's the kind of unfettered, unregulated capitalism that we have. So to make it capitalism turns off all the people who say, oh, well, that's, you know, just those liberal types. But, it, you know, that, that um, she's not saying that the model of uh, capitalism of production and the, the way it works uh, could work, but what we don't, what we have is actually a system now that's regulated. So that um, anyway, you know that whole rant, and I am not an economist, but I'm, I I certainly understood that whole thing. I think so much about hopeless, and this it comes back to. Uh, community. When we when we started, and I, I said, you know, I, I feel so grateful, really, that we have this group, and that uh, it's all right with you if I come and talk every week about what's on my mind. What other group of people? You know, my husband doesn't want to hear day and night what I have on my mind. You know, he's heard it plenty, and you know, he's got stuff on his mind. He talks back, but. Uh, <laughs> But you know, I, but you do too, and I enjoy that. And I figure we know each other, and this is a group. And uh, you know, you didn't sign up and join, but I, I recognize your faces. I always think someday we'll really learn everybody's name. That would be good, you know. Um, but I think to have a place where, even when I'm not here, when I'm traveling, and it gets to be Wednesday. I think, oh, I'm not there, and the people are all there. But, the, you know, Donald is there, they're talking to each other. That uh, I could be here and Donald could be teaching, that to have a place where you know, okay, I go there, and that's my group, and they, they make sense in the way I... I was thinking about add-ons, that that seemed to me the crucial thing to say, because I, what I wanted to say, and what I have been saying, is that... Um, the, the second of those, affirm, uh, of those wishes, may I be free of enmity and danger. The second one is what I th hope I have been ha talking about. May I have mental happiness. And I thought I remember thinking about that and thinking, that's such an odd construction. What is mental happiness or physical happiness? Actually, the more I thought about it, I thought, well, mental happiness is having a mind that's empty of afflictive emotions that none of the hindrance energies of negativity and greed and boredom and restlessness and self-doubt are there. And they, they, they only arise anyway when the mind is startled. And if the mind has a certain amount of uh, equanimity in it and, and steadfastness. I keep saying, I keep doing this motion with my uh, hands. It should be steady. Because things happen, you say, oh, you know. I guess this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. What should I do? All of that means I knew how it felt. That hurt or that that was attractive to me. Uh, without, I'll be mad at it or I'll grab onto it. You know, it's just in between. There's a space between what happens 
and knowing what feeling comes up about it and jumping on it. It's that space that Viktor Frankl talks about. Between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. It is not freedom from conditions, but it is freedom to take a stand toward the conditions. What should I do now? It doesn't mean non-spontaneity. It doesn't mean not, you know, getting excited when your team wins the World Series. Or it does mean not going out and turning over cars. <laughs> uh, you know, it it it's so clear to me that we could have a whole wide palette. The the, the literature is full of stories about. The Zen master whose son dies, who is weeping tremendously, and his community of monks uh, question him, and they said, uh, "You know, you've told us so many times that everything that's, that takes form, everything that arises passes away, that everything passes, that everything dies," uh, and and the Zen master says, "And I am very sad." That doesn't mean that you're confused. You're just very sad. That you could be very sad and you could be very happy and you could still have wisdom prevail. Um, you know, that uh, I, I started by saying that uh, the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. Um, and the near enemy of uh, empathic, of joy, is exuberance. And I used to think, well, you know, uh, that sounds like we're supposed to, you know, temper down things. But um, uh, the, the most recent example is maybe, I mean, maybe this is silly. We all got excited when the Giants won the World Series. People went out in the streets and they partied. Some of them turned over garbage cans and set fires and wrecked cars. That was a little bit exuberance getting out of hand, so that get taking over wisdom. You stay in your house and you applaud and you say yay and you text a friend and say that was great. You know, how to you know it stays within the. I remember saying to you that uh, I liked that the television cameras panned over to the Kansas City team sitting in their dugout looking all disappointed. <coughs> and it was like a, a teaching of, it wasn't there, I wanted if I to say to them, if I were their coach in that Kansas City locker room, I would say, look guys, you know, it was not time to win. We could have yesterday, we were terrific. Today we were not good. So not good enough. We were good, but not good enough. So it happens. These things happen. It's not. Uh, it's not the, our time today. It's to be able to think. Everything that happens has causes. Just what I said before. Everything is conditional. It's so conditional. If I had not taken the granddaughter to dinner that night, she might have met the person. But you know, who knows? But this is what happens. But if my grandfather had not come from Europe, she wouldn't be here to meet that person, you know? So every single thing is part of everybody's karma. So if Mitch McConnell is behaving the way he's doing and having the ideas that he does, he didn't make it up. 
It came from the people that he came from and the teachers that he had and the beliefs that he cultivated and the people that he admired. And nobody is, nobody, um, nobody is responsible and everybody is responsible. And you know what? Those are one of those sentences that you say, oh, well, that's that Zen stuff. It's so unclear. <laughs> up is down and in is out. But really, up is down and in is out. Uh, but really, everybody is responsible. And no one is responsible. Everybody, everything is responsible. And, you know, even when somebody does something great, you know, they didn't do it alone. You know, so you see somebody do some fantastic uh, rendition of the Snow Queen. So she, it's coming out through her body this time, but her teachers and her teacher's teachers and her mother and father, probably her mother who drove her to thousands of ballet classes and got up early in the morning to take it a special coaching. You know, that I watched the ice skaters and because I, I had a friend whose son almost went to the Olympics. The first three people in the, in the nationals at the end of the year, the first three people go to the Olympics. And this young man was fourth. And everybody said, ah, you know, since he was seven or eight, his parents had been getting up at four in the morning to drive him to a rink so he could do it. But, you know, he made a whole life teaching skating and skating all over the world in pageants. And he had a great life. And you don't know. You just never know when to get disappointed. Certainly not to give up. I think that the only thing that gets left at the end, I see it's time to stop, but it's important to say, because I won't be here for three weeks, that what we come back, what I come back to is in the whole time that we're always together, I, I, you know, I, I love to talk about what I'm thinking about, but I actually love the time that we share together what's in our hearts, because I feel maybe this is an add-on, maybe I've made this up, but I don't think so. You tell me. I feel in that moment so confirmed in the sense that everybody feels moved as I do, even by stuff that I, I don't know the person because I can't see them and I'm not usually having my eyes open. And somebody says some event that's happening in their life that they know about, and it touches my heart and mind. I'm pretty sure it touches everybody's heart and mind. And we all rediscover that we are wired for con compassion and kindness. I feel so good about that. That's very hopeful. That's actually... The, the, the direct reason that I am hopeful that the world is not going to let itself end because we don't want to do that. You know, if we, if we just really looked around and say, we're all killing each other and the planet, we have to stop. Yesterday was Armistice Day. And I heard a very touching thing on the news as I was driving my car about uh, a ceremony that they had in Oakland. There were 11... There are 11 living members of Squadron 11 that flew off the USS Hornet or something during the war. There are 11 living, six of them came to this event yesterday, and they talked about, they're all 90-year-old men, you know, and they're talking about how they remember their buddies. And, uh, and then someone went on, which was very touching, and then someone went on to say that particular squadron... Uh, knocked down 200 Japanese planes and off the Hornet 100 American planes were lost. And I thought to myself, 
when is somebody going to say, taking young men, and now women, and having them kill each other, and waste all of that material, it's got to be absolutely the end of craziness. What are we doing? Somebody has to figure out how to, how to fix that to the whole world and say, we're out of our minds. What are we doing, you know? Anyway, but then it's also touching. You know, here's these old guys. They made it through a life, you know, talking about their buddies that they remembered till now. I remember when I was um, working at uh, um, Mount Zion Hospital at the time uh, during the Vietnam conflict, and uh, I'd sometimes be in the uh, dining room in the cafeteria at lunchtime, and uh, they had a certain code that they'd say, like code blue or 2040 or whatever they said, and it would mean that somebody's had a cardiac arrest, so there'd always be a team of people who would leap up and run out of the dining room, so you know that that's happened. And I think to myself, and at the same time, I remember there were the, the Coral Sea came home uh, from combat. As I was coming over the Golden Gate Bridge, and uh, I, I heard it on the news, and I pulled off that, when I got off the bridge, I parked my car and I went back, and I looked down, and I, I started to cry. There were the whole remaining crew of the Coral Sea was standing on the deck and all in, in their whites and standing at attention. And I was so glad that they were coming back and that they were alive. And then I thought to myself, it's so weird. We use all this person power to, and, and, and knowledge to run upstairs and revive some old person who's really about to die for another two days. And we send out thousands of young men in the best of health to attack other young men in the best of health. It's like completely crazy. You know, we, I, I mean, all the better we run upstairs and try to revive people. At the same time, we are massively killing people. I remember getting really, um, it was funny, it's a funny memory. I remember my colleagues at work, I told them I'd gotten out and watched the Coral Sea and that it caused me to cry. And they, uh, they chided me about it. They said, oh, you know, supporting militarism. I said, I'm not supporting militarism. What's the matter with you? I'm, you know, I am marching against this whole conflict. But here are boys coming home that didn't get killed. You know, why would you not cry? Anyway, that's a long rant for this morning. That's because I'm not going to be here for three weeks after last today. Um, but I will see you on the 17th of December, and Donald will happily be back in the meantime. May you and may we and may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.